0: Hello and welcome to the 2021 Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, presented as part
1: of International Literature Festival Dublin. Hi, my name is Maeve Higgins. And my name is Jessica Trainer. And in this special podcast series, we're exploring each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award. Now the winner will be announced on the 20th of May as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which like the award is sponsored by Dublin City Council.
0: The award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth 100,000 euro to the winner or winners.
1: On today's episode, we are looking at Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melchor, and it's translated by Sophie Hughes. Now, like so many great crime novels, Hurricane Season starts with the discovery of a dead body. The witch is dead. And the discovery of her smiling corpse by a group of children playing near the irrigation canals, that's what propels the whole village of La Matosa into an investigation of how and why this murder occurred. Rumors spread, suspicions spread, and the novel unfolds in these amazing torrential sentences. It's very captivating, I think, anyway, um, because you probably spotted Jessica, you know, the story is told by kind of a chorus to start. Then it kind of goes from other characters' differing perspectives. Each one is an unreliable narrator, um, and they linger on some old and some new details, And I think there's an unrelenting toughness, but alongside that, there's a hopelessness that haunts the whole book. Um, But it's still so readable. And Hurricane Season was inspired by a story the author read in a newspaper, and it's full of really brutal acts that reflect the very real issue of femicide and gender-based violence. Some of the characters, to give the listeners an idea, there's a 13-year-old called Norma who runs away from home because she is pregnant by her paedophile stepfather. And then there's Brando, who's a teenager too. He's both a victim and a perpetrator, but there's always some humanity in them. There are oil field workers, there are sex workers, all kinds of gangsters. So the hunt is on for the witch's killer or killers, but ultimately you're left with a lasting portrait of this kind of doom laden Mexican village that feels real, but it's also almost like um, a really compelling fairy tale.
0: Yeah, I think here, like there's shades of so many different writers whose work I, I really admire so much. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. reminded of, of Roberto Bolaño's 2666, um, and also the kind of... uh that kind of south american magic realism almost there's this kind of sense with the prose and that it just kind of jumps off the page and also a sense of fairy tale and myth that's woven throughout it that i think gives us a break from the the horrors and the grotesquery of it which i find quite compelling that's maybe just my bag but (laughs) but yeah there's, there's interesting fairy tale motifs run throughout it giving it a really eerie quality
1: Yeah. And, and you're right. Like, um, she definitely shouts out, you know, um, Gabrielle Garcia Marquez in, you know, in, at, I think in the end notes of the book and that dreamlike quality that you mentioned, like you're in it, you're kind of glad to be in it. And I looked up the book on Instagram, you know, where everyone talks books all the time, bookstagram. And so many of them use the word mesmerizing. I think you kind of get like sucked in and, and you don't want to leave. But, um, Jessica, I was going to ask, did you spot the first epigraph that's on the front of hurricane season? It's one of our own countrymen. I did, I did.
0: It was nice to see that it wasn't the Second Coming because I think the Second Coming needs a break. But right. uh, we do have some <laughs> wonderful lines from W. B. Yeats's Easter, nineteen sixteen. Uh, he too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born, um, which is such an interesting idea. But the novels, there's something coming into being here, something kind of dark.
1: Yeah, I, I was, I was like, you know, I think I read that in my, doing my leaving search. And I was like, what is this, you know, book about femicide in Mexico? How are they connected to the, you know, the violence inflicted on an Irish rebel? But I think all that violence, it's all gratuitous. It's all unnecessary. Um, And in the case, in Yates's case, it led to a revolution. And maybe that speaks to the themes of hurricane season, because it is like a very propulsive depiction of very extreme violence, especially sexual violence. But maybe by kind of forcing us to stare at it, to face it, um, that could change something that's been almost normalized uh, into something that we just say, no, like we are not tolerating this anymore.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it, the, the the problem of femicide in Mexico is almost, I mean, it's so enormous that it's actually quite hard, I think, for us to grasp over here. But there were huge protests recently weren't there and it's something that comes up again and again in 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 literature from the region um and does
1: does Fernanda have a a kind of a background writing about those about that femicide? She does yeah she does I mean yeah like you know almost 1,000 women murdered in 2020 it's unimaginable but she lived in Veracruz right for a while and um she covered this, these murders for magazines and for papers using um, what Mexican writers have been using for a long time, uh, chronicas, which are a blend of kind of literature and reportage. Uh, but it's really dangerous work. Like journalism is really, really dangerous in, in many parts of the world, um, including Mexico. So I think that's a big reason she turned to fiction for this particular story, right, which is based on, you know, something that she had that had happened. Yeah, she has that first hand experience. Um, mm-hmm. And is this her first
0: book to be translated into English? And and how does that translation work? I mean, as I said earlier, like the prose here is really electric, but it's incredibly dense and layered. Um, how did you find reading it in translation?
1: Yeah, I think the translator did a brilliant job. I mean, so that's Sophie Hughes, and she's been receiving huge acclaim for her work here because, you know, the, the words can be really ugly, really hostile and the book is written the way people talk and this is how people in these situations it's how these characters you know would really talk so in translation it works beautifully and I mean I wonder would you read some actually and we'll, we'll hear from ourselves the how how well like you feel like you're there you
0: know. Yes, so this is an extract which has Norma, the 13-year-old who's run away from her abusive home um, and she's moved in with another teenager um, whose mother uh, invites Norma into the house one morning. In the middle of the room there was a man slouched on an armchair with his legs spread and his interlocking hands resting on his belly. He had dark glasses and a thin greying moustache. He was watching a game show on TV with the volume turned way down. Norma hesitated in the doorway, then muttered hello and bowed her head as she hurried past the television screen, trying not to disturb the gentleman, although seconds later when the man opened his mouth and produced a long, honking snore, she realised he was fast asleep. Letting herself be guided by the smell of cigarette and Chabella's husky voice, which hadn't paused for one second, Norma continued down a short hallway and poked her head around the only door she found open. This is my room, Chabella greeted her. Nice, eh? But before Norma could mutter a reply, the woman went on, chose the colours myself, wanted it to look like a geisha's room, see? I've got a few dresses in here I hardly wear. I was thinking of giving them to the girls at Excalibur's, but they're a bunch of thankless bitches, only out for themselves, fuck them. Norma gazed at the red and black walls, the chiffon curtains that must have once been white but were now tinged yellow from all the smoke and nicotine, the enormous bed that took up almost the entire room, and on which lay a towering pile of clothes and shoes and pots of cream and makeup and hangers and bras. "'Here, try this,' Chavela said, holding out a red her dress covered in blue polka dots. "'Well, come on then, chop, chop, I already told you I don't bite. Don't just stand there like a dummy, Mamacita. What did you say your name was?' Norma opened her mouth to answer, but Chabella didn't pause to listen. Got to keep your wits about you in this world, she pontificated. You drop your guard for a second and they'll crush you, Clarita. So you better just tell that fuckwit out there to buy you some clothes.
1: Oh, (laughs) lovers. (laughs) Yeah, she has a very powerful energy. Um, Yeah, you, you did that justice, Jessica. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself and the author of Hurricane Season, Fernanda Melchor, and the translator, Sophie Hughes, too. Hi, Fernanda. Hi, Sophie.
2: Thank you for joining me. Hi, Maeve. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Hello, it's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you.
1: The book is so fabulous. I'm really excited uh, to talk to you. And the fun part for me is that um, I think everybody has questions when they read Hurricane Season and I get to ask. (laughs) I get to ask the brains behind the book. But first of all, Fernanda, this came out right in 2017, initially in
2: in Spanish, right? Yes, uh, in in Mexico. And and a year after it it also was published in Spain, also in, in 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 Spanish.
1: Oh, cool. So I was thinking about that because, of course, it took you the time to write it. And we know in publishing there is a kind of a waiting period, you know, after you've written it. So this this book, now it's out, you know, in English and it's marching around the world. It's almost like it has a life of its own for years after you have, you know, sent it in to the publisher. So what does that feel like?
2: <laughs> it is a very particular, uh, I think, uh, situation and, and feelings because I was really close for a time with this book. Uh, it, it, uh, I think it, it was written... Uh, out of uh, a personal necessity of addressing uh, emotions, difficult, hard emotions and and topics and all this uh, violence that surrounded me as a woman in Mexico. So it was a a book written out of necessity, you know, like an emotional necessity. And after almost, I think, five years now, uh, it's been... Uh, last week, we signed the uh, the, the uh, translation rights for Croatian, I think, uh, and wow. for lots of uh, languages that I don't even imagine how, how, how <laughs> wow. it's going to be translated, how it's going to sound. And I still got, get to talk about a hurricane season, and it, now my, my relationship to the novel has changed, of course. And I, uh, thanks, uh, to, to translator like, like Sophie or like Laura Sescova's translation to French. French and English are the only languages that I can read, uh, besides Spanish. Uh, I get to now to read myself like I was another author. And that's, uh, it is a beautiful experience and a very shocking one. And I just need to thank Sophie for uh, now being able to do that because in Spanish, it is really strange now. It, it seems like it's something that another person wrote, that another person uh, created and, and I can distance myself. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, Now, And it, I wasn't able to do it before.
1: No, it's fascinating. I, I don't know that a lot of writers ever get that opportunity to kind of have that bit of distance and so um with with yourself and Sophie um how did you come to work together like Fernanda do you as an author get a say in who is a translator and and Sophie you have this very illustrious career as a literary translator so how does it work for you do you also get to choose
2: Oh, I, I don't really get to choose. Uh, not sometimes. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't really think that I like to choose. Uh, it, it is not my realm of uh, expertise, and I am a translator myself, from English to to Spanish. And obviously, I'm not as good as Sophie. I, I mostly translate bestsellers and and like more more, more commercial literature, and. Obviously, I respect uh, hugely uh, the, the translator uh, task. So I try to um, stay, uh, you know, away, away from her, you know, to, to not uh, interfere, uh, not being over her shoulder all the time. And I just <laughs> respect a lot totally. what she does. Yeah, you know, as a translator, I encounter authors that that they think they know Spanish, you know, and, and to, uh, it, it can be, it can be a little awkward. And at the same time, it's just a beautiful experience being translated and translating. So I really trust my editors and my publishers. And I, I know they always choose the best people that, that matches the story and the, and the language. So, you know, it couldn't be better.
1: Oh, beautiful. I'm so glad to hear that. And, um, also, I did not realise you were also a translator. Did you know that, Sophie, that that's what... You I did know. know. <laughs> I did know that. Yeah, yeah,
3: it it helped. Um, I, I got to say that um, beyond it being the most exciting commission that I think I've really had to date, just because of how much I connected with the book when I read it, how much I loved it for so many different reasons. Yeah, I, beyond, uh, beyond that, to work with someone like Fernanda, who... who understands that there will be a process that hopefully involves the author, uh, whereby I send questions, I have queries, and and we share some of the problems. Like beyond that, Fernanda didn't, didn't, I knew that she was capable of looking at the English and and tweaking. And I think that's really hard for an author not to at that stage. Mm -hmm. And I, I was enormously grateful for that trust, especially because the novel was doing so brilliantly well. And also because when I read it, I had this strong sense that it was a bit of a, a masterpiece and I hadn't read anything com- coming out of Latin America, which is usually where I translate. I hadn't read anything quite like it to me, you know, um, there are lots of good books coming out, but for me it was a, uh, for me, it was something really special. So I was just delighted. And you know, Fernando and I have never met, but I feel like we have. We've done so many podcasts. I've only ever seen her in 2D. Um, but yeah, I feel very I feel very close and very connected to her. And I think that's also to do with her allowing me into this book and giving me carte blanche within the reasonable expectations of my job, which is obviously not to go completely AWOL (laughs) with a book. Uh, But, you know, to have the freedom to allow the voices to speak and the voices to sing in English, which is obviously extremely different from Veracruzian Spanish from Mexico. Um, So it's been a wonderful process. And so has being nominated for these prizes. It's just the cherry on the top.
1: Well, I love to hear that. I also love to say that you had carte blanche, the French term for (laughs) (laughs) translating a a Mexican Spanish book into English. I just love it. Um, And also you mentioned that like when you read it first, you felt like this is a masterpiece and you were caught up in it. I felt the same way. And I was looking at the book on Instagram and people are like bonkers for this book. And a lot of people mentioned sort of like a trance-like state while they were reading it. And so I wanted to know, you spoke, Fernanda, about it being this urgency for you, a personal necessity. So maybe it didn't feel like you were in a kind of a trance, but I wonder, what did it feel like as you were writing?
2: No, it definitely felt like a trance. I was under the spell of this book, it was a very uh, physical experience and, and a mental one. I've, I Always since I uh, began writing my first stories when I was a teenager, I, I will hear a voice inside my head that will tell me what to write. There were stories that were uh, told in a first-person character, so it was a clear voice talking, telling a story. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there, there's a great uh, Mexican uh, author uh, that's called Sergio Pitol. And Sergio Pitol always said that uh, authors and novelists, uh, were we were people that hear voices among the voices, voices between the voices in our heads. And uh, with Hurricane Season, there were lots of voices inside me. There were um, the women of La Matosa. For me, the way to uh, find a way to tell that story and uh to create this uh forgotten village in the in the south of Mexico, I had to create the voices of the people who lived there and they were mostly women and they were always uh trying to tell their own stories and and contradicting each other and gossiping around and I was surrounded by this whirlwind of, of voices and I had the the, the difficult task it, it was you know mesmerizing all the time uh, i I was fascinated by the story they they, they told me and in the difficult part was to find an order, uh, to find a way to make the reader experience what I was experienced, and to, to find a narrative voice able to travel back and forth in time and to go inside and outside the, the, um, the characters. And, and uh, for me, it was very important uh, and, and the influence of uh, boom, Latin American boom writers like Jose Donoso and Gabriel Garcia Marquez even Vargas Llosa, because they, what they, uh, experimented in the sixties when they began writing, uh, these beautiful and, and great novels, uh, what, what in them was experimentary form for us, mm-hmm. the new generations. It is, it is like a learned language. Now mm-hmm. we can, we can, we can use those, uh, risky forms of telling and, and it's very natural, I think, for, for lots of, um, young Latin American writers. Well, I'm 38. Young is uh, relatively.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's young. Oh, that's, you're a baby. I'm expecting (laughs) at least... 20 more novels from you in the next 20 years. Yes, please. <laughs> but, awesome. um, not? <laughs> yeah, okay. So Sophie's on board to translate. Okay. Get down to work, Fernanda. <laughs> um <laughs> you, you mentioned like that you, you know, from from an early age, as you were beginning to write, these these voices were kind of coming to you. And so I'd love to hear. I know that you also wrote basically journalism, nonfiction work, right? So which were you naturally drawn to? Like, were you immediately thinking I need to novelize this or, or were you kind of thinking, no, I need to get myself out of the way and tell this person's story?
2: No, no, no. I think I always um, my inclination was to tell stories. It, it never really mattered if they were real or, or based on real facts or or. Uh, process through my subjectivity to become fiction, uh, I always was interested in language and in words and in telling stories. And I, I, I became a journalist uh, because here in Mexico, if you study literature, it's mostly for becoming um, a literature teacher or a researcher, uh, an academic. And I wasn't really interested in, in following a career uh, in, in academics. I, w- I, w- I wanted to be a writer, and I, around, uh, around me, I saw that writers could be anything they wanted. They, they could be engineers or, and doctors, and writing was something that was a part of their lives, no matter what profession they had. So my family was pushing me a little bit about uh, telling me to choose a career that I could live off, because, you know, every, everyone tells you that it, it's impossible to live from uh, literature, of literature. So I choose journalism because I think it had to do with words. For me, it was like the closest, like, like the closest career to being an, a detective because I, <laughs> yeah. in my teens, I had this uh, fantasy about becoming an FBI agent, you know, like, like Clarissa Starling or Dennis yeah. Coley. So
1: amazing. yeah,
2: being a journalist, yeah, was the closest thing to it. So uh, I, I choose journalism and, and for me, I I have learned a lot from uh, the journalistic practice. I learn how difficult it can be to attract the attention of of the reader. Yeah. And and, and I l- I learn a lot of strategies to to maintain the attention of, of this reader to take reality and tell reality in a real life uh, fashion because I think it's what we call in in Spanish verosimilitud. I don't really know how to say that word. It's yeah. the same, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. but it's kind of realisticness.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's the lesson I learned. And yeah. I started writing uh, crónicas, like like this short piece uh, of nonfiction writing. Like I think in the English speaking uh, cultures they're called personal essays, but it's something in between.
1: It's like some reporting and some narrative, and yeah, I might be wrong, Fernanda. Tell me, but like, did crónicas come about because? it's quite dangerous to be a journalist in in mexico so people would maybe disguise some of the elements of truth but still tell a
2: story or i could be wrong with that uh, no no i think there's that that's one of the reasons mm. uh, another one could be that in uh, latin american journalism uh, was made from writers at the beginning in, right. the, in the 18th century uh, journalistic were writers too that they wrote fiction and we have a literary uh, sort of um, uh, uh, tradition in, in journalism. And uh, for, for example, the, the Latin American boom also uh, helped a lot because uh, uh, people like Gabriel Garcia Marquez or even Jose Donoso wrote uh, journalists uh, with, with a very high quality, w- with a very literary quality. So in uh, all around Latin America, there are uh, writers uh, dedicated exclusively to telling nonfiction stories. And but at the same time, you could say that it is a strategy to avoid let's say com- confronting with I don't know uh, politicians or with uh, organized crime groups, but being a cronista doesn't um, doesn't protect you from those wow. from those problems also It is not something so so safe anyway
1: Wow. Yeah, um personally I really enjoy it. I think it's fantastic. And there's this scourge in kind of American and European writing where it's like objective, factual, you know, th- that's not possible anyway. <laughs> so I'm like, just make it good. <laughs> make it good and, and make us want to read it, you know? And when you mentioned about sort of strategies that you learned in, you know, in in your earlier writing to kind of grab the reader's attention and, and part of that being using real language like that really came across to me in hurricane season and uh, and obviously in Sophie's translation too there's this um kind of like crassness to the language and this like what you'd expect to hear the way people are talking just on the street um that I found so cool and made it so um so much more real to me so i suppose uh this is a question for you Fernanda like did you do that by listening out you know, is that the way the voices just came to you? And then for you, Sophie, how did you, t- you know, faithfully put that into English for us?
2: <laughs> I, I just love words and, and mm-hmm. bad words are included in words, <laughs> of course. I, I yeah. just, you know, I, I love using this strange, uh, antique words in Spanish at the same time mm-hmm. uh, and using this, this uh, street lingo that that... that is the most vulgar and, and, and explicit. (laughs) And and I just love it. I, I, you know, I grew up in a culture in in Veracruz. We are kind of like that. It is, it is reputed to be the most, um, dirty talking state in Mexico. (laughs) Veracruzanian, we have that, um, that reputation, and I just grew up listening. Congratulations! <laughs> <It's>
1: fantastic. <laughs> it, for a writer, it's so it's so fun, and it's so yeah. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. That's it. it it's
2: so fun. You know, th- this you know, these popular expressions have this particular poetry. They're made, you know, from nowhere, and everybody uses them. and And I just love mm. to listen to it and try to dissect the, it, and and then reproduce it, to recreate mm-hmm. it. Because the language in Spanish in, in hurricane season is not exactly Veracruzanian 100%. It, it is sort of um, uh, um, a mix. Uh, I, it is progressive besides, uh, and, it, and it changed from person to person. Uh, 50 yeah. year old character will not speak the same way as a, as a 18 year old character, for example. And, and I was really careful to, to construct this, this sort of language and and I think Sophie has a, also a fancy for bad words too and, and <laughs> she did she did quite a research herself <laughs> yeah well I come from just a gobby
3: gobby uh, pack of siblings really I'm one I'm the youngest of six oh, oh, uh, wow. and so I was just there was always a lot of listening going on on my part in my house, maybe not on all of my siblings' part. But, you know, I did, I, I, as the youngest, I didn't get to talk much. I just had to listen. And I've always kept an ear out in public for what people are saying. And, I, and I'm, I, I don't think I necessarily use them that much. But, yeah, I just, I do collect things that I hear people saying. And so, for me, the most important thing with hurricane season was to preserve a sense that these are, that each character has his or her own idiolect. So like people were really interested when they started reviewing this book about the Veracruz dialect. And I was like, yeah, but uh, A, because of what Fernanda says, um, which is that it's not necessarily strictly one dialect in this, in this book, but B, because it's not possible. That's not possible for me to recreate in English. Uh, It's, It doesn't, you know, there is no Veracruzian slang in English, right? So I had to make some decisions about how to do that. And what I I hope that I achieved is that each character has his or her own voice. And so, for example, um, yeah, the way that the, that the, uh, that, Yesenia's, um, you know, old, old, old mother speaks to her, has a slightly older kind of, she, she may use kind of slightly older phrases that you might, um, that you might think of, uh, of, of, the, of the previous generation having used. Um, and yeah. I also didn't shy away from mixing up Englishes. So, uh, you know, do, from American English and British English, for me, it would have been, um, a little, a little bit of a mistake to just try to to do one or the other without also remembering that that Fernandez Mex- Mexican Spanish or Fernandez Spanish in this book is also a bit of, a, a kind of a mongrel Spanish.
1: Right. Yeah. There's this um, trebella when she says like uh, she's it's the first time when she meets <laughs> little Norma and she's just such a powerhouse and she's like get a wriggle on, you know, she's like, yeah, chop, chop, yeah, get a on or something yeah. it's, it's like, really, it's really interesting when you, when you look back to the Spanish and you look
3: at, get a wriggle on, you know, obviously it doesn't say yeah, anything no. like that. Um, there's also instances where, where I do that for, for Munra, like, um, it, like he had to earn a little bit of money is what happened. Or the, it was a nice, it was a job that earned him some good money, is the Spanish. And then I look back and see what I did for the translation. It was a nice little learner. But for me, that was that was vital because, mm-hmm. you know, that you can pick a translation apart and do this kind of comparative cross-reading across them, but that will not tell you if it's a successful translation. What it makes a successful translation is one that you get sucked into and believe. Um, and so that, that, for me, was the great... My, my biggest challenge and the, my hope is that it worked. But this, this, whole novel is like a tour de force of dramatic irony so that so the, the, the speaking voices don't always know what is happening to them. They don't always understand the forces that are working to make their lives so difficult and 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 brutal and violent. And they don't even understand that the way that they're talking is violent or brutal a lot of the time. So for me, the, the way to maintain that dramatic irony was for each of them to have really believable voices because I think that in this case was what it meant to be faithful to this book, not like looking at every single line and and having the same wording, you know, which isn't even possible in translation anyway.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think that Spanish is, a you know, like a colonial language here in Ireland. You know, we speak English, but we speak it so differently than they do in England. And I don't know, there's something really... Uh, intriguing about, you know, people thousands of miles away having these similarities and impossible to capture that without a translation, you know, unless, you know, which I don't, unless you speak Spanish. But do you know what I wanted to ask as well? Basically, like, there's this terrible, you know, gendered violence. And um, Fernanda, you know, we talked about there's this, uh, the graphic detail of the language and of this violence and, there's these missing and murdered women in Mexico. And here in Ireland, we have our own issues, right, with gender-based uh, violence. So do, did you see this book or maybe more generally, um, what do you think about using literature as an intervention, you know, like in, in the hope of changing it or is this even a fair question?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, of course, was thinking in saying something when I wrote this book. I could say that literature is not a really good uh, tool to, to social change. For, for example, uh, it, it is too slow and, and it's too individual. It changes uh, a person, but each person uh, at the time. I think it's very difficult for a, for a, and it's a very ambitious and a, a little bit unjust task for a book to change a society. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, for me, it's my way of expressing myself. Uh, this is the way I, I think things uh, with narrative. This is what I do. This is my work to, mm-hmm. to take these preoccupations and, and worries and, and anxieties and anguishes that I feel about the situation of the women in Mexico. Yeah. In Mexico and in, well, in, in the third world, you know, and, and even in the first world, I think, I mean, it is true that there are countries that have uh, and cultures that have made advances in, in, in this subject, but it, it happened last century, you know, it, it is not something yeah. that we can take for granted everywhere. And I feel really honor, uh, uh, for the nomination and, and because I, I, I think Mexico and Ireland are really close, uh, culturally. I think we have, uh, similar ways of, uh, regarding of seeing, uh, matters like, like life, death, art, uh, uh, partying. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I think we are, we are very connected and I find, um, uh, for example, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I was thinking when I wrote Hurricane Season, uh, I, I tried to tell Norman's story because for me, it, it is so difficult to understand why in Mexico we cannot have a, a respectful a respectful uh, law uh, of abortion, for example. No. Why women in Mexico, we don't have, we don't generalize have a, a right for abortion. And you have little kids, you know, like like ten years old, twelve years right. old, having children, children having children, and and this sort of uh, uh, of obliged maternities that I, I don't know. When I think of hell, I I, I think of, uh, of having 12, 12 years old and being 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 forced to to give birth to a child that you don't desire. I I, I cannot fathom any more, you know, horrible than that. And, uh, it is something that I saw all the time growing up around me in Veracruz. And I wanted to talk, to talk about that. And I know that happens in a lot of places too. And it is, I, I just, it is, it was my way, I think, to try to understand why are we, uh, why are, are we women always taught like, uh, citizens, citizens of second class? You know, like, why does this thing happens? Why does everybody needs to have control over all our body, our bodies? So I, I'm sorry, I started there because it, it's something that really maligns me. You know, it, it is un- uncomprehensible for me. Since I was a child, I didn't understand what this could happen. How, how can grown-ups, adults allow this to happen? And I just needed to to express this. And, and Norma's story talks about this. But the whole book is is uh, it talks about the the, the the horrors of forced maternities, I think, and, and what it is like when you have no right over your body, when you have to go through a pregnancy that you, that, that was undesired and, and the things that does to the life of a woman and, and how they can sometimes not regain control of their lives anymore after that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so resonant, you know, as you said, throughout many parts of the world and certainly in Ireland where we're having a big reckoning yeah, at the moment with these you know um the mother and baby homes as they were called and so i think for us to get to read something that is so direct and so um so questioning then yeah it's just it really hits it really hits a nerve and also it's it's very painful so i want to say thank you to you for putting yourself there and for writing it because, um, we, I think we need it, you know, um, I think it's a a really beautiful service that you did intentionally or not. I know you said it was something you (laughs) had to do, but, um, but no, I do thank you for that. And, uh, I wanted to ask you both about process because lots of our listeners are readers, but lots of them are writers too. So, Um, I wonder, could you both talk to me about your, I mean, like your actual physical process. (laughs) So (laughs) like, do you, you know, uh, in the morning, do you sit down? You don't let yourself get up. Like how do you treat yourself as you're writing, as you're working, as you're translating?
3: I, for this book, I'll talk about this book. Uh, Otherwise, I'll bore your listeners. Um, so, for this no, book. Sophie, I, I, there's no, Sophie,
1: there's no boring <laughs> answers. We all want to know how you guys create this magic.
3: Oh, that's a really funny, way because once Fernanda wrote back to me after I'd asked her a couple of questions about the translation, and she said, There's no stupid questions, Sophie, because I'd said, Oh, it's so, this is so nitpicking, this is so nuanced, and you're going to think I'm ridiculous. She was like, No, there are no stupid questions, which is great. Um, process. Yeah, so with this book, I had just had a baby. I just had my first child and nothing was going to stop me wow. translating this book. And so I, I I, didn't have the kind of like full day ahead of me to translate Fernanda. Um, but I did I was so lucky uh, that the book is so compulsive, one, because it's written in these kind of um, run-on sentences, um, which is very, you know, this is a F- Fernanda's strength and her fantastic style that she's becoming known for now all over the world. Um, and that's a really co- compulsive as a translator because there's not really a natural place to stop. So you just keep going because, you know, this character's thoughts are running and running and running and you and you just want to keep going. And also because once I felt that I had found their voice for the day kind of thing, once my kind of hand, my tongue got in gear, um, I, I didn't really want to stop. So that meant that I was it was a really efficient process. Um, I, I tend to do a very rough draft first. So I really literally just get the words on the page. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, earlier, I was thinking when, when Fernando was talking about these voices talking to her, it reminded me of of, of Anna Burns who, who actually won this prize. Was it last year? Was it the oh year, for last the last milk year, I think.
1: Ma- yeah the milkman
3: yeah. And it was I once heard Anna Burns talking about she has this beautiful anecdote of where she's peeling potatoes in her kitchen or whatever, making dinner, and the voice starts talking to her, and she literally has to put down the potato, put down the peeler, and she runs to her desk and she starts writing because he, he's arrived she said like the voice has arrived so I have to obey it at that at that second and then she'll go back hours later to these brown potatoes that she hasn't cooked you know (laughs) because 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 she had to obey the voices and a little bit I mean a, a little bit because of time constraints and and the way and the time in which I was I was doing the work and but like a little bit when it when the voice came I just wanted to get as much down as, as possible. Um, yeah, and then loads and loads and loads of reworks. I mean, I mm-hmm. at least eight or nine drafts. That's for every book, but
1: yeah. Eight or nine drafts, um, wow. And and
3: reading aloud, reading aloud is so important because you know there where like something's just sticking, something makes you trip up. And like, so a swear word that may have been like the literal translation or, or closest you can get to a very close translation of the Spanish, you just say, actually, he wouldn't say that here. He'd say this. Or even yeah, or even realising where yeah, precisely, where you've been a little bit too conservative and that it's just sounding a little bit maybe like what we call translation ease, where something just feels a little <laughs> bit stiff and it needs to be teethed out, um and you need to just obey English. Yeah. So that's 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 my process. Really. Oh,
1: that's so that's Loads of insight. Thank you. I also love the idea of like you reading this aloud and there's like a tiny baby there. And you're like, no, actually, I think you co- should call him a shithead here. No, actually, I did call him an asshole here. <laughs> Excellent. You might explain a few things, actually, now
3: that he's a toddler and he's talking.
1: <laughs> Everyone's like, is that the Veracruz
2: dialect? <laughs> <on>. <laughs> He's too slow. He's a non-urban now. Oh, yeah. perfect. <laughs> give him a give him a bat. <laughs> Yeah, well, for for me the process was was very similar. In fact, I I always read out loud. I need to hear mm. the words uh, uh, physically physically in the air, and I I need them to have a particular sound. I, I write a lot um, uh, like this. I, 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 as a phenomenon, I, I, I like hearing the words out loud and for the the, the difficult task. Well, as I told, you you know, I I was hearing these voices and I will sit in front of the computer or, or in a notebook and I will write, you know, like descriptions and, and, and testimonies. And, and I I didn't want, I didn't want the novel to be a recollection of testimonies in first person. I, I didn't want it to be, you know, while I lay dying. Right. Nor or, or for example, I just read uh, Marlon James' uh, brief, brief story of Seven Killings. Wow, mm-hmm. amazing! But I didn't wanted to do that. I, mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So I, I needed to find a voice uh, that could support uh, a personal view, but at the same time that could allow me to distance myself sometimes and, and to observe the characters from the outside and. Uh, of course, I I, I don't know. Uh, I think the first chapter that I considered, it is not the, the one where the kids find the, the corpse of the of the witch at the mm-hmm. beginning. Mm-hmm. For me, the first one is the other one, the one that tells the story of the witch. Yeah. And uh, that one just came out without paragraphs. So I, I don't know. I was shocked a little bit that it came out like that, but it was very organic. And the second one, uh, Yesenia's story also. So I decided from then on to continue to, to pursuing this this um, this sort of uh, challenge. But at the same time, it was I, I think I, I found a way of telling all the characters are sort of uh, stuck in a certain situation, and yeah. they began having this mental mm, journey uh, and and why they uh, got there. So the, each chapter is like a spiral like a downward spiral for each one of the characters. Yeah. yeah. And, and the whole novel is like a big downward spiral that, you know, goes deep and deep and deep into the motives of a, of a horrendous crime. Uh, it, there's lots of work. Now I can say it's so easy, you know, but yeah. But I, I, yeah. You know, I, I, there were times where I was crying in the sofa, like, like <laughs> oh. crazy because no, really, because, I you know, I it, just, yeah. for example, I just written Norman's part and then I knew I had to finish Brando's You know, mm -hmm. to go to Brando after Norma, it it was just, it was something that I needed to do, but at the same time, it Mm. was very difficult emotionally. And I, I, everybody, everybody laughs when I say this, but it's true. I I had to go to therapy after writing this book and, and, you know, it's funny, you can laugh, (laughs) but I mean, it was it just confronted me with so many... I, was, I, I don't think
1: I was gonna say that's not a surprise. like
2: I need it. I needed it anyway, but yeah. <laughs>
1: It was it was necessary for me anyway.
2: We all yeah. do. Everybody does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it.
3: But Fernanda, uh, uh, how, how much, it must it must be so beautiful to hear someone like Maeve actually because it's quite rare, at least in the interviews we've done together, where someone says thank you for writing it as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, it's not what every book should be, but it's true that this book is like I, I was always just so grateful that you had written it, and yeah,
2: thank you. But I never know what to say uh, uh, when when people told me this in in Mexico. In Mexico is is very emotional because uh, the, the reaction of of, of readers because uh, the book is very realistic and and people always is telling me that I wrote you know like I rip reality apart and put it in a book and and it, the reactions are are very. Emotional and, and I feel like every reader who, oh, we, we can do it. We cannot do it now because of the pandemic, but in book presentations, everybody just wanted to hug me, you know, mm. like, like they thought I needed it <laughs> and, and maybe I did, <laughs> but it, it, it is a very powerful book and it's a book that cost me a lot in terms of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, like emotional power. And, and I ended up draining it completely draining after writing it. And, and I just, Of course, it it, it is one of the best experiences I've had in my life, even even if it was so hard. Wow. Well,
1: I know, I think maybe in future, if somebody says, hey, thank you for doing this difficult work, you can (laughs) say, can you just like kick in some money for my therapy? Because I'm (laughs) going (laughs) to... You should start. That's for (laughs) (laughs) Um, for sure, for sure. But look, I just really am so glad that I got to to speak to you both, and it's just such a cool uh, collaboration as well as individual efforts and. Uh, It's much appreciated and I just wish you both the best of luck in all of your uh, writing, translating, working going forward. Thank you so much,
2: Maeve. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was super fun. Thank you. Thanks
0: for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2021 Dublin Literary Award winner announcement.
1: And wherever you're listening from, you are invited to join us for the online award ceremony on Thursday, the 20th of May. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com
0: and browse all the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.